Yes, we're open. Living Faith with Needham UCC, a sermon podcast from the Congregational Church of Needham United Church of Christ, where no matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you're invited and welcome. This sermon for Sunday, August 27th, 2023, is entitled, This Barbie Doesn't Even Belong to Herself. It's a reflection on a reading from 1 Samuel chapter 14 and chapter 18, selected verses. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to find out more about our open and affirming ministries at the Congregational Church of Needham, United Church of Christ, simply head over to our website, www.needhamucc.org. Thank you. Friends, our scripture reading today continues in our reading from the Hebrew Bible, continuing in the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 14, verses 49 through 51, and chapter 18, verses 17 through 21 and 29. These passages have been pulled together by Reverend Dr. Wilda C. Gaffney in her Women's Lectionary for the Whole Church. And part of our Year W project, listening for the voices of women, girls, and the divine feminine in Scripture. So let's listen now for a living word from God for us in these words from 1 Samuel. Now the sons of King Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Machisudah. And the names of his two daughters, the name of the firstborn was Merib, and the name of the younger, Michael. The name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, daughter of Ahimaaz, and the name of the commander of his army was Abner, son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. Then Saul said to David, Look, here is my older daughter Merab. I will give her to you as a wife. Only be my valiant warrior and fight the battles of the Holy One. For Saul said to himself, Let me not raise a hand against David. Rather, let the hand of the Philistines do it. Then David said to Saul, Who am I and and what is my lineage, my ancestral house in Israel, that I should become son-in-law to the ruler of Israel? But at the time for giving Merib to the daughter of Saul to David, it happened that she was given already to Adriel, the Mahathlamite, as a wife. Now at the same time, Saul's daughter Michael loved David. Saul was told, and the matter was all right in his eyes. For Saul said to himself, let me give Michael to David, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So Saul said to David a second time, Through the second shall you be my son-in-law this day. And Saul came to fear David more, and Saul became the enemy of David every day from then. Friends, God is still speaking to the world and to us. May our hearts be open to listen and to respond. Amen. On the surface, our reading today from the book of 1 Samuel tells the story of the political maneuvering and the personal feud between Israel's first and failed king, Saul, and his rival and soon-to-be king, 
David. This scene occurs midway in their tumultuous relationship when Saul wants the popular upstart dead but can't yet bring himself or be seen to do the deed. Best to honor David by letting him lead the charge against the enemy Philistines and die trying. It's worth noting that this is the same strategy King David himself will employ against Uriah the Hittite, the inconvenient husband of the object of his lust, Bathsheba, when eventually he takes the throne. In the meantime, Saul is all fake smiles and false friendship as he seeks to keep David close even to make him part of the family by giving him his own daughter to marry. Or daughters, plural. Saul first offers David the hand of his elder daughter, Merab. David demurs, however, pleading his low social standing makes him a poor match for a princess. It also keeps him safer. It's unclear whether his humility is genuine or merely an effort to escape Saul's machinations, but ultimately, Merab is married off to another man. In the meantime, Saul notices that his younger daughter, Michael, has fallen in love with David. Seems to be a theme with Saul's kin. So the king decides to turn her feelings for his rival to his own advantage. Let me give Michael to David, he says, in a theatrical aside to the audience, that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So Saul marries off Michael to David. But when the Cold War between Saul and David turns hot, he gives her to another man. That is, Saul gives her to another man, and David marries another woman, Abigail. But when David at last wins, he demands Michael's return as a spoil of war and to guarantee the peace and to cement his connection to the previous royal house in the eyes of the people. He demands Michael's return not in place of his current wife, but in addition to. And eventually, as we've already noted, David will bring Bathsheba into his harem as well by force and deception. All along, we've said that this year W project in which we've been engaged for the past nine months or so is an effort to listen for the voices of women, girls, and the divine feminine in the Bible. Sometimes that simply means reading different stories than the ones traditionally offered for our attention via the revised common lectionary we've employed to guide our scripture reading Sunday by Sunday. Stories explicitly about women that center women's experience. But truth be told, there just aren't that many stories like that in our biblical canon. More than we've been led to believe, to be sure, but still not many, and fewer still, that would pass the Bechdel-Wallace test. That measure of women's representation in film and other fiction created by cartoonist Alison Bechdel and her friend Liz Wallace in 1985. To pass the test... A particular work of art must include a conversation between two women about something other than a man. Extra points if the women are given names. While technically the Bible does pass this test, it's with something less than a D minus. John Dyer, a theologian, social worker, and data scientist working for Dallas Theological Seminary, has crunched the numbers. 
He reports that of the 31,102 total verses in the Bible, just six meet this criteria. A named woman speaking to another named woman and not about a man. Yes, women are there and they play some key roles in the story of Scripture, but these exceptions really serve to prove and underline the rule. Where women appear in Scripture, in dire notes, just 202 women do appear in Scripture versus 2,866 men. They are represented as the objects of conversation, not the subjects doing the conversing. In fact, they're mostly just treated as objects, period, as in our reading today. Objects to be handled and horse-traded by the men who are the subjects of the stories that historically, of course, have been told by men for men. Or they're represented as problematic outliers to be overcome. Think Delilah or Jezebel or Eve, who have become code words for problematic women or the perceived problems with women in general. While not pleasant, this does make sense given the extreme patriarchy of the ancient cultures that produced our Bible. But at the same time, we need to acknowledge that these texts are both shaped by the cultures and also serve to shape those cultures. We tell stories, and our stories tell us. Tell us who and how we ought to be and how we ought to relate to one another. The message the Bible sends, according to the data, is that women are secondary to men, and a far second at that. Literally, they are created second after Adam. And they're to be seen, if at all, behind the scenes, behind the men, between the lines, and not heard. I'm not saying that's how God sees us, men or women. But then again, as much as we say that the Bible is the word of God, it is not God's literal, unedited words. At best, it's God's word and will filter through the all-too-human instruments, the hearts and hands that wrote it down and shared it with us. And those instruments have been, and in its interpretation, continue to be overwhelmingly male. Male like me. Thank goodness, then, that that is all in the past, in Bible times, thousands of years ago, so far removed. Or more realistically, in the more recent past, before feminism or the women's rights movement and the Me Too movement of just a very few years ago, before all of those put us all to rights and put an end to patriarchy and ushered in the equality of the sexes, God always intended. Only, of course, it isn't, and they haven't. That is precisely the point made by the recent runaway hit movie, Barbie, by Oscar-nominated director Greta Gerwig, one of just seven women so honored in the more than nine decades of the Academy Awards, of which only three have gone on to win. Hashtag Oscars so male. It's also the point made, interestingly, backhandedly and emphatically by the film's many vocal and overwhelmingly male detractors online and elsewhere. 
In the film, the Barbies, the dolls created by a woman but controlled and marketed by the men at Mattel, live in a hot pink fantasy land. A Barbie land where they tell their stories, they make the rules, they run the world. And so every day is the best day for them. While the Kens are accessories. They are the and Kens of Barbie and Ken. Unessential arm candy, whose only good days come when the Barbies look at them. But an accidental exposure to our real world makes one particular Barbie question the nature of her existence the minute her sculpted high-heeled heels finally touch the ground. Is she a person? Someone who makes meaning? Or is she simply an object, a toy others use to make their own meaning? And it makes one particular Ken jealous and angry to the point that he imports patriarchy back to Barbie land while Barbie isn't looking, where it wreaks havoc like a virus, flipping the script, putting the Kens in charge without making things better. Not for the Barbies or even ultimately for the Kens themselves. Which is, I would argue, precisely where we find ourselves still today. Despite all the positive signs we'd like to point to as proof of a growing equality between men and women in our real world. We're just not there. Frankly, we're not even close. Sure, we're closer than in Bible times, but not by as much as we, or at least, at least we men, like to think. Women are still worth less than men in our world. They're valued less, paid less, respected less, in just about every way we can describe. Women are accorded less airtime, and not just in works of fiction. Women are allowed less agency, granted fewer rights to self-determination. Like Merab and Michael long ago in our reading from 1 Samuel, women today are still told who and how to be. Women's lives, bodies, minds, and spirits are subject to greater control legally and culturally than men, by men, for the benefit of men. Don't take my word for it. After all, I, all I can do is mansplain. No, let's take a moment to listen to the women among us. Listen to corporate ESG. I had to learn what this is. Environment, Social, Governance Consultant Joan Michelson in an article she wrote as a contributor to Forbes magazine in 2022. You know, Forbes, the famously radical revolutionary rag. She says, earning substantially less than their male counterparts over time, 83% of men's earnings, according to the Census Bureau. And here, I will remind us that those figures are skewed quite a bit higher by white women who earn more than women of color. Women thus have much less in all types of lifetime finances, including their social security benefits, because those are based on your earnings. Women also live longer than men, therefore risking running out of money as they age. As a result, women have substantially less financial leverage to say, 
pay for college, or buy a home, and may have lower credit scores, too. It's a domino effect throughout women's lives and throughout the financial and economic system, writ large because women make 85% of consumer purchases. And here Michelson quotes another woman, Danielle Gibbs-Legere of the Center for American Progress, about the so-called pink tax. Women's shampoo is more expensive. Women's deodorant, women's razors, haircuts, medical braces, getting a shirt dry-cleaned, Girls' toys are more expensive, bicycles, backpacks, and on and on. And none of that includes the fact that 27 states currently classify menstrual products as luxury items, which levies even more costs on those products because of the taxes associated with them. Listen to Katie Burkholder an editor at the Georgia Voice, an online and print publication by and for the LGBTQ plus community in Atlanta, Georgia. In an opinion piece titled, Womanhood as Personhood, a Love Letter, she writes, Womanhood has been consistently defined in relation to men. For a long while, we were literal objects, the property of our fathers and then our husbands. Now this objectification persists. If you are seen as a sexually viable woman, your body is commodified by men. If you aren't, because you don't fit the strict beauty standard or you're visibly queer, you are erased and ignored by men and your sexuality is fetishized and objectified. Regardless of where we align in comparison to the patriarchal feminine ideal, all of us are subjected to dehumanization. Feminism is the rejection of this objectification, the belief that women are more than sexual objects, more than wombs, more than bodies, more than caretakers. We are human. However, because we are human, we are not monoliths for good either. We're not all girl bosses whose success and power are inherently feminist. We're not innately kind or caring or tender. We have feelings and opinions that are not always good or right. We are capable of love and gentleness, but we're also capable of cruelty and anger. We are fallible. We make mistakes constantly, and those mistakes should be simultaneously criticized when necessary and understood as part of the human experience. There isn't one definition of woman that binds us together. We're not bound by biology, by menstruation or reproduction, as some transphobes would like you to believe. We're not bound by some innate connection to Mother Earth or Mother Mary. We're not bound by some inherent badassness. What we are bound by is oppression. Regardless of who we are, there will always be someone who disrespects us, belittles us, ignores us, or puts us in physical danger. That is the nature of being a woman, or even broader, a misogyny-impacted person. It is through that shared experience that we can relate to uplift, and advocate for one another. A self-described black, lesbian, feminist, socialist, mother, warrior, poet, Audre Lorde said, 
I am not free while any woman is unfree, even when her shackles are very different from my own. I love women not because we are kind or powerful or badasses, but because we are human. That alone warrants love. And it is the denial of this humanity that we must continue to fight against. And finally, listen to this description of the expectations enforced on women offered in the Barbie movie itself in a speech co-written by Greta Gerwig and actress America Ferreira for the character Gloria. It's Gloria's own ongoing everyday existential crisis as a woman in the real world that precipitates both the conflict and the possibility of healthy growth in Barbie land. She says, it is literally impossible to be a woman. You are so beautiful and so smart, she says to Barbie, and it kills me that you don't think you're good enough. Like we always have to be extraordinary, but somehow we're always doing it wrong. You have to be thin, but not too thin. And you can never say you want to be thin. You have to say that you want to be healthy, but also you have to be thin. You have to have money, but you can't ask for money because that's crass. You have to be a boss, but you can't be mean. You have to lead, but you can't squash other people's ideas. You're supposed to love being a mother, but don't talk about your kids all the damn time. You have to be a career woman, but also be looking out for other people. You have to answer for men's bad behavior, which is insane. But if you point that out, you're accused of complaining. You're supposed to stay pretty for men, but not so pretty that you tempt them too much or that you threaten other women because you're supposed to be part of the sisterhood. But always stand out and always be grateful. But never forget that the system is rigged. So find a way to acknowledge that, but also always be grateful. You have to never get old. Never be rude. Never show off. Never be selfish. Never fall down. Never fail. Never show fear. Never get out of line. It's too hard. It's too contradictory. And nobody gives a medal or says thank you. And it turns out, in fact, that not only are you doing everything wrong, but also everything is your fault. I'm just so tired of watching myself and every single other woman tie herself in knots so that people will like us. And if all of that is also true for a doll, just representing women, then I don't even know. Interestingly, the resolution to this tension offered at the end of the film isn't perfect. That's how we know Barbie isn't a fairy tale. The Barbies and Kens aren't somehow magically made absolutely equal all at once. That happiest of hoped-for endings, if they ever get there, will take a lot more work, a lot more negotiating, and a lot more listening.
But the first step is to do what Gloria does. To name the problem, the problems out loud to ourselves and to the world. As the audience for the film, we do then get to witness the first next step on that much longer journey. At the close of the movie, Barbie learns from her creator, actress Rhea Perlman, playing the spirit of actual Barbie creator Ruth Handler, that she can decide to be other than just what others, history, the Kens, corporations, the patriarchy, have told her that she must be. She can choose to be human, fully, messily, painfully, joyfully human, and to love herself as fully human, as the absolutely non-negotiable basis for every other relationship in her life. And she does. What will you do? Women and men. Barbies and Kens. What will we do? Where will we go from here? Where would our creator have us go? Not the Bible, but God. Not the scriptures, but the living, loving spirit of our creator. And will we go together? So, beloved, if you have heard a word from God here today, remember to give all glory and honor to our one God, Creator, Christ, and Holy Spirit. Amen.